Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren, and this is not Saturday at noon, so this is not a regularly scheduled episode of the podcast. Last weekend, uh, we took a bit of a breather. We released the remaining hours of myself and Andrew's 18-hour live podcast covering Twin Peaks The Return to raise money for the Irish Cancer Society. We did it back at the end of March. Uh, It was a very, very... um, crazy thing that we did but it managed to raise a good deal of money people seemed to enjoy it and it turned out i think about as well as we we could have hoped if not even better unfortunately we suffered a loss of uh recording material the first time we've actually lost an episode of the podcast and a huge shame actually because the hour that we lost was the hour that we spent with the wonderful andy hazel who joined us uh, to talk about evil in twin peaks um however Andy will be joining us this Saturday at noon to discuss Adam Elliott's Mary and Max, the 2009 clayography exploring the friendship between a 44-year-old man and an 8-year-old girl that crosses half the globe and half a lifetime. Um, It's a deeply moving film. And Andy actually managed to sit down with the director, Adam Elliott, um, to have a conversation, a wide-ranging discussion of both the film itself and Adam Elliott's sort of like his wider work ethic and also some of the plans that he has uh, for the future as well. And we're very thrilled to be able to present that. Thank you very much for that, Andy. What we would note, if if you are about to listen to that, uh, to the interview, just make sure you watch the film first because Mr. Elliott discusses the film in a great deal of depth, including going into why he made certain story choices and sort of what the inspiration behind particular scenes were. So if you haven't seen the film already, it might spoil a couple of moments for you. But there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't run out, watch the movie, come back, listen to the interview and hopefully join us on saturday we're very very excited to be talking to andy about this uh, you can follow andy on twitter he's at andy ricky um you can also listen to him at the twin peaks podcast and he's done a wide range of writing some of which will be included in the show notes on this interview and in the show notes on saturday so thank you very much um hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we did i've always said that if as soon as i make a flop then i'll quit and i'll go back to Right, okay. Being a portrait painter. <laughs> so what qualifies as a flop then? Because uh, like Mary and Max, what, ostensibly lost $5 million or something like that, I think. Oh, yeah, well, look, um, they've all... The thing is, none of them, or none of them, have been commercial successes in any big way. They've all they've all won lots of prizes and have won prize money. Um, but, you know, short films, 99% of all short films around the world never make their money back let alone a profit they're not mm. you know they're, just, they're an art form that's just so expensive to make um so when mary max which is my only feature film got made um which was eight million dollar budget mm. a lot of money well not much in animation that's quite of course cheap, it's tiny yeah. tiny but for an australian film at the time that was a lot um and it was a big risk the government investing in in it because it wasn't for children it, it had challenging subject matter it had you know it was suicide uh, there was you know a character with uh, Asperger's and so it was not the type of film they you know they were hoping I'd do something like Blinky Bill or yeah. <laughs> something a bit more commercial but because of Harvey Crumpet winning uh, the uh, the Academy Award uh, there was a lot of trust in me and um, uh, expectation um, but it did. It, it, it was released just as the GFC hit, so yes. worst possible time. Um, yeah. It was the opening night film at Sundance. It, mm. it, it won lots of film festivals. Yeah. But again, I made I'd made another critically successful film, but 
I was really hoping it would do commercially, be commercially <laughs> successful too. But, yeah. I mean, look, it has made money and it, it made a million dollars in Australia, which now, if an Australian film makes a million dollars at the box office, yeah. that's considered a big success. But ten years ago, that was, that was you know, okay. But all my films have done well in, in Europe mainly. Um, but, we, you know, we we're all hoping for a US theatrical release, which, you know, is the golden ticket that everyone yeah. aspires to. Um, but but since then, the film's, you know, it's um, it's been turned into a musical. Uh, and so it, it just keeps going on. And, and this, you know, the IMD top 250 thing still baffles me because I, I just think, what's it doing in there? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, that was one of the one of the things that really confounded me as well was that I remember like because I w- went to see it when it came out and everybody was talking you know what an amazing film it was and how it was unlike anything before and mm. all this sort of stuff. And I think lots of people like um, the movie show they were talking about you know what a leap it was on you know from Harvey Crump it was amazing as that was and mm. there's all sorts of like it felt very fresh and new I suppose and it still does you know ten years later I mean it's almost exactly ten years. It yes, it is. Yes, and uh, yeah. So have you been following what's been happening in these 10 years? To the film? Well, I, I, I mean, I had a bit of a breakdown, after, to be honest, after the film was uh, complete. I, I was exhausted. It was The shoot alone was uh, 57 weeks. Uh, I had a vitamin D deficiency. I, I, my producer and I weren't getting along. We then separated. Um, and then I vowed I was never going to make another film ever again and, and then realised I couldn't do anything else. And uh, <laughs> wow. So I... I didn't. I, I did disconnect from it altogether. Um, I thought, no, it's it's let it do its own thing. And my producers, I don't own the film. I don't own Harvey Crump. Yes, my, right. you know, yeah. so which is not uncommon for a director. Um, but because my films are so personal, and I am an auteur, that you know, um, uh, yeah, it, it's. I let it go off and do its own thing, and and it is amazing that all these years later it's still i think animation has a long shelf life anyway but uh it's still chugging along and i, I get emails every week um mm. from people who've discovered or rewatched it and there's certainly some um you, you know it, i used to joke and say oh you know films don't save people's lives but i've actually had emails from people who've who've said that the film really has um affected them and and, and given them hope and all this sort of thing and and this film's now taught in schools uh, as an educational device and and I still I don't I'm not I'm not one of those people who likes to go back in time and analyze what I did right I know with Harvey Crumpet I thought oh well you know it won an Oscar I don't know what I did (laughs) uh, I'll just uh, I'm always about moving forward and just discovering new characters and stories I want to tell but so I thought Mary Max would just go away quietly and <laughs> right. disappear, and and yeah. then I don't think it was. I think it was at least a year or two after it was finished. Somebody said, "Oh, it's in the IMD top two fifty and I said, "What's that?" <laughs> I don't even know what that is. And I said, "Well, it obviously is in there by mistake, or it's some weird algorithm." And uh, and I knew it was doing well critically on things like Netflix America, and but I said, "Well, I." won't stay there long obviously it'll obviously drop out pretty quickly but it's still there yeah yeah and it, I, don't, are there, I don't even know if there are many other australian films no i think it's mad max fury road i think it's the only other one. Oh, okay so it's 
<laughs> I'm sure I'll get a letter one day. So, oh, we made a horrible mistake. We got it mixed up with this other film. Um, well, how, do you know how they worked it out? It's just um, rating star ratings out of 10 and okay. by the number of people. Okay. So I think there's about 180,000 people have voted, given it a star rating, and it's okay. high enough to be in there compared to other films. So a lot of other films will go in. Like, you know, Adventures Endgame will probably be in there right now, and then it'll, maybe it'll be gone or much lower okay. in a few months' time. But yeah, well, it's, it's pretty rare. There's not many other films from that sort of era. No, no. Oh, let alone animations. But. And we certainly have. We now, um, with, with my new film that I'm um, financing at the moment, we're we're certainly using that statistic as leverage to to get more money. And uh, I know it has a currency in America that really has some weight. And um, but here in Australia. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. It's like it did feel like when it came out, oh, yeah, it did pretty well. A lot of people were talking about it and then everybody kind of moved on. And then mm. for some reason, like, what, do you have any explanation? Do you think it's because it's such a personal story that people have connected with it so well? Well, I think at the time it was such an anomaly. It was, as I said earlier, for, for adults. I never made it for children. And the irony is that now that it's taught in schools, well, not primary schools, mm. secondary schools, um, it was a natural progression uh, for me because I'd always wanted to tell a longer story, a, f- a full biography from birth to death and the trouble with short films is you don't get time to really have a full character arc um, and it was, you know, all my films were about people I knew and are extensions of my own psyche I suppose and, and Mary Max was a story about my pen pal in New York who I still write to every week, he's he's alive mm-hmm. in the film he's not Uh so he was the basis for the for the story, and I'm Mary, Mary, yeah. you know, myself, and um, so it wasn't. I didn't see it as a big, uh, an unusual film or, or groundbreaking or anything like that. I mean, the fact that it's in plasticine, I suppose, makes it unique. And that word "unique" started to get thrown at it a lot. And but I, you know, I'd grown up well, particularly at film school. I, I was really. Um, I was really getting into Czechoslovakian animation and Eastern yeah, European animation. Yeah, and, and mm. again, I, I wasn't making this film from mainstream audience, secretly hoping that the film would go mainstream, but we sort of knew it wouldn't. Um, so we thought it was just a little art house film. But um, but, but in France, it, uh, it, it did well in France and Germany, and I still can't work out whether people who watch it identify more with Mary or Max because I I think Max is the more successful of the two characters. He's more believable and authentic. Mm. You know, but he's certainly not someone you would recognise in the street. You know, he's he's a very unusual man and my real pen pal is very similar to the character in the film. Mm. Uh, but I think it, it it's done well because all my films are about the underdog... They're about people who are misunderstood and marginalised. And I always have a very simple uh, objective with each film, and that is to create characters that are empathetic, endearing. Um, and I've always always started my scripts with a um, sense of anger, or injustice more than anger. And, and with Mary and Max, I wondered, you know, my pen pal has really been misunderstood and... and um, treated badly his whole life and so I felt I really needed to tell his story and uh, and back then too Asperger's wasn't a word it wasn't a word that really today is quite 
you know, people still don't quite understand what Asperger's is. They know it's in the spe- on the spectrum, in the spectrum. Uh, but, yeah, no one had... <laughs> mm. I suppose 10 years ago there weren't many people making films about as- characters with Asperger's in plasticine <laughs> in a feature-length format. So, yes. Yes, from Australia. That's <laughs> From Australia, yes. So I did... Now I look back and think, yeah, it was quite an unusual film. Yes. Well, that's interesting <laughs> because I was pondering this and thinking about why... You know, you are talking about mental health in a very interesting way. I'm sure you didn't mean to set it out to, for it to be purely an educational tool, no. but it has become that, you know, through people connecting with it and it being a very, very insightful, I mean, clearly connects with a lot of people very deeply. Mm. Um, but these marginalised um, people, maybe in 2009, weren't, were being less marginalised, were, were, were still very, very marginalised, but now mm. a lot of them are on the internet, able to communicate, able to oh, vote yes. on IMDb and this sort of stuff, and obviously express... I think that's the, 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 what's happened is since then... Um, well, my pen friend, the only... Back then, the only sort of web or internet sort of website he, he was sort of um, found some solace in was... Uh, I think it's still around Aspies for Freedom and it was a chat room for people with Asperger's and now there's you know thousands of them. Uh, so he felt very um, alone and isolated and now, of course, he's connected with other Aspies all around the world. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I was very nervous when the film was released because I, I was worried that maybe we had got something incorrect um, but we did a lot of research. Uh, I even got the script read by um, Professor Tony Atwood, I think his name was, uh, who's at the time was a leading expert on um, Asperger's um, from up in Queensland. And he read the script and he said, no, no, it's pretty accurate, you know. And because I based the character on, on my pen pal's letters, um, it was pretty authentic. I really... There wasn't that much I embellished. Mm. Uh so the whole, you know the we we got it as accurate as we could, but we didn't want the film to be about Asperger's either. We wanted it. <laughs> it's actually I I described it as a love story at the time, and when we were pitching it, mm. trying to get a finance, we were, we quickly were told don't call it a love story. And I said, oh, it's a love story between an eight year old girl and a forty four year old man, and it was like no. And today, of course, you go. So it became a friendship story. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. And, uh, but again, based on my own life, when I, we started writing to each other, I was about 17 and he, well, what is he now? He's 64, I think. Uh, so, yeah, the, the film really mimics our relationship, our pen friendship, and we hadn't met. And the irony is that we met after the film was made, or right. we met for the first time. I met him New Year's Eve 2010, I think it was. We flew to New York. Oh, I knew what he looked like, um, but yeah, we we met, and it, it, luckily life wasn't imitating art, and he didn't pass away mm. minutes before I arrived or after. Did he have veto over the film? Like, if he didn't like it, would it be very much like the book being pulped? He, uh, I told him I was going to make a film about his life. He didn't see why. Well, he couldn't see how that would be interesting. And I said, well, it's going to be a work of fiction. It's not a documentary. None of my films are documentaries, but they are based on, on truth. And um, so he said, fine. And uh, and then when the film was made, uh, well, he is enormous and still is enormous, so he couldn't get to a cinema. And at the time, there were no cinemas, and he you know, definitely was not going to come to Sundance. 
so we sent him a DVD and he watched it on his laptop. And from memory, he sent me a, 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 a list of things that could have been better. <laughs> True Asperger's fashion. Yeah. I wouldn't say he loves the film. He certainly doesn't hate it. You know, he... I don't even know... I mean, we don't really ever talk about the film. It's just not... Mm. Yeah, I mean, his brother Larry, who's a bankruptcy lawyer in Delaware, he he loves the film and his family love it. And, and um, but no, no, I don't know. He's he's indifferent, I suppose. Did he watch you on the at the Academy Awards? And yeah, yeah, yeah. he, uh, you know, he Harvey Crumpet. I mean, he's always he's he's a big comic book fan, and he's always. And cartoons, and he's. I think he's always been a bit bewildered why I, you know, uh, why my stories tend to be dark. Mm. And, and I think he would prefer they be lighter and more comical and cartoony. Yeah, we're very different people. So, because you got offered to Romeo and Juliet, I think, was it? Oh, yeah. I, yeah actually, I get, I've been offered lots of films to do with. Gnomes and Smurfs and I don't know why. <laughs> what it's about. Um, yeah, I mean, not offered. I mean, what how it works is that you well, pretty much after we won the Oscar, um, we got an agent and manager, and you, you know they would 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 say, well, well, there's these scripts. Do you want to read these scripts? And one of them was um, Romeo and Juliet. And, and I said, oh, it sounds terrible, no. Um, I read The Smurfs. That's definitely mm. one I read. And I said no to that. <laughs> I said no to some... The Sherlock Gnomes, did you get offered that as well? Uh, not <laughs> Sherlock Gnomes. There was another one too, a hunch, Hunchback one. I can't remember what that was called. Hunch 2D. Because at the time, there was this big flood of really bad computer animated features. Everyone was suddenly in mm. on making computer animated features. And... We knew our biggest strength was coming back to Australia and, and trying to get a feature financed here. And that was a big risk because, you know, we, we were turning down a lot of money. Uh, but I knew that the Australian government would... Well, Film Victoria, SBS and the FFC back then would most likely support me. Um, and And they did. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, certainly don't regret. I mean, there are days I think, oh, gee, you know, I've still got a mortgage and I live in a little tiny apartment in, in the city and, mm. you know, I certainly have very little superannuation to, to... I can't, you know... And if I'd gone to Hollywood, um, yeah, I'm sure I'd be far more comfortable, but I'd probably be miserable. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> or not. <laughs> That's what I tell myself in my moments of despair. So, so, but why did you get offered those? Because clearly you, you're a claymator. Like, we're claymator? Mm. Yeah, mm. like, you don't do... No, animation. and this is what I found baffling was they said, oh, it doesn't matter, it's computer... And I said, I know nothing about computer animation, zero. I, I don't, you know, I didn't even... I mean, I've always been a slow adopter anyway, and I... I even social media, I'm dreadful at social media, and I'm trying to get better, but... Um, Back then, I was like, oh, I was terrified. I thought, I can't direct computer animation. And I was only in my early 30s, too. And right. I made one yes. feature film and some shorts. And, and I was very much an auteur. And, and had and collaboration was, you know, I mean, I'd employed people to help me make the films. But I'd never collaborated with another writer. I hadn't even had a script editor. Right. So I was, yeah. I, I pretty much had total creative control and freedom. And... 
the idea of directing somebody else's story and then something for children and something highly commercial. I mean, I suppose I was a purist as well. And I was like, oh, no. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Right. So do you look at other animation houses and think, oh, I wouldn't mind that? Like Cartoon Saloon, say, in Ireland. Mm. You know, mm. very, like a film every three or four years, very tightly controlled. Yeah. I, I, get, I do get down when I, I, you know, I often wonder... I often worry that Australia still is at the other end of the, you know, at the bottom of the earth. And yes, we have the internet, but uh, I think, gee, if I was living in, if I was French and I could speak French, um, mm. I, I probably would be making a film more often. But having said that, I'm a very slow writer. So, and I, and I'm, I am a perfectionist, and it's taken me a long, so, long time to say that word. And, and I think I'm on the OCD spectrum as well. And so I. You know, I'm, I'm very fussy about my screenplays and, and even this new one has taken over three years to write. So this is a feature? Yeah, I'm, right. yeah I'm, 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 it's my last attempt. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I made another short after... I made a short after uh, Mary Max, Ernie Biscuit, mm. as, a, an, as an experiment because I was trying to work out ways to get my budgets down because um, it's, it's almost impossible to raise the budget we have for Mary Max today just with the with the way films are financed here in Australia. So I thought, I've got, to get, I've got to get my budgets down, and I have, I've worked out ways. So Ernie Biscuit was this sort of experiment. It did start off as a feature, but it, it was, the budget was $40 million or something. Oh, really? So yeah. it was just out of control. And, I'd want, and I wanted to make something more light-hearted and comical, but still have, you know, dark moments. And it did okay, it won an AFI and it did well at festivals, but it didn't do nearly as well as all my other films. And I thought, what have I done wrong? And it took me a long while to work out that my audience want me to make uh, tragedies with comedy in them, not comedies with tragedy in them. Right. So I realised they actually want, they want more of the dark than they do of the light. They want more of the... the the poignancy and and the, and the tragedy and, the, and but then highlighted with these comic moments. So I learned a big lesson on Ernie Biscuit. So I said, all right, if if they want dark, then I'm going to give them dark. So that's what I've been doing. the last three years. I've been writing the darkest screenplay I could come up with. Wow, right. Okay. <laughs> so it's and it's proving hard to finance. It's getting it's getting a really good response from readers who get to the end and are crying. I said, great, you're crying. That's what I want. Um, and there are light-hearted moments, but I keep forgetting that, you know, adult animated films, despite the fact that globally adult animation has really come to the fore and, and thanks to Wes Anderson and Tim Burton and, mm. you know, they're making darker films and, and a lot of the big studios are making more challenging animated features. But, no, it, you know, they're still not delving as into the darker material like I am... Um, you, you don't see many feature animations dealing with suicide and, and kleptomania, and you know. Mm, right. Uh, so I've uh, and I've worked out that that's my niche. So I'm going to give it a go. And, and Screen Australia and Film Victoria have, have uh, script developed it and funded it. So they're right behind us, and we just now got to go out and you know try and raise the money. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, because also film financing has changed a lot since mm. Mary and Max. So are you looking at places like Netflix or streaming services? Yeah, well, Netflix is certainly on our list. Um, I've now partnered with a new producer, Liz Carney, who did um, Paper Planes and The Turning with Robert Connolly. And Robert Connolly's come on as an, as an EP. 
So we formed a new little company and the three of us are really trying to finance it the traditional way uh, using the rebate and Screen Australia Film Vic and um, and you still got to get a theatrical you still got to get sales agents here and overseas so can't name which studios at the moment in Europe are reading it but it is being read at the moment and so if we can if we can do it the the old fashioned way then we will uh, but if we can't, we'll yeah, get mm. in the queue at Netflix and see. You know, the trouble with Netflix is, is, is of course they, you know, they'll own the film yes. forever, right. and uh, and we'll be able to raise the budget, I presume, a bit higher. But and you can get in front of more eyeballs. Absolutely, and and it's that's what wakes me up at two in the morning. Is, is should I, you know, should I? Like Netflix is a one-stop shop. You go there and they'll just finance the whole thing, and it'll be. Before Christmas, it'll be you know uh, uh, we'll be making it. Whereas the traditional route is so slow, you're dealing with bureaucracies, you know the tax office, sales agent. It's just it's just so much slower, and then there's no guarantee anyone will see it. Yes, yeah. And particularly with Australian films just bombing at the at the at the box office, um, I almost don't want a theatrical. Really, the, the, the right. shame of having your film not <laughs> <laughs> make any money, but. Mm. Gee, the odds are stacked against you. Um, yeah, yeah, it's you know. a tiny percentage every year that yeah. cut, break even. Mm. Yeah, so and things are changing so rapidly. Who knows where, how films will be financed in five years' time? You know, mm. Apple's just come on, of course, and yes. then yeah. Amazon, and it's very tempting, though. I mean, it must be. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, and they are financing. Um, you know, challenging subject matter. Well, and, and they tend to mm. leave the creators alone, from what I gather. Mm. Yeah, they almost don't give notes, which mm. sounds a bit, bit lazy. I think there should be a bit more, <laughs> bit more rigor there. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think they understand the auteur, and and particularly because so many art house uh, filmmakers have jumped to TV, which is no problem with that. Mm. But um, there's there's a hope I think out there that. I mean, a few years ago, we were all told that art house cinema was was um, going to die and was on a precipice. But then there were people saying, "No, no, just just wait. It, this could be a golden period for for auteur feature filmmakers." Yeah, okay, if you're Wes Anderson, and, mm. and there's a lot who've fallen by the wayside. But I do, I do have hope because I think there's so much content being created. Too much content, I think. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. But it's all of such a medium quality. You know, I always, always believe in quality, not quantity. And, and even though my films take so long to make, um, I really, I'm getting to that point in my life where I'm starting to wa- worry about legacies. I never mm. knew, you know, that, <laughs> but trying to think, well, I don't, I just want to, I'd rather make a body of work that, uh, you know, there's always going to be one or two that is, uh, that are weak, but. On the whole, if I can make a body of work that's strong, then then when I drop dead, at least I'll know that I've left behind something um, of worth rather than taking the money and run. I mean, there's, you know... I sound like a purist when I say that, but I, I remember when I was at art school that selling out was the, the, was the phrase, selling out! And now it's like, well, everyone's selling out now. Yeah. <laughs> join, join, you know, jump, jump on the wagon. Um, Weren't you in an insurance ad at one point? Oh yeah, well after the Oscars, yeah, I, uh, that was my one sort of dalliance with the commercial world. Well, but I said yes to that because it was a, 
was an RACV ad about house and contents insurance and um, they they wanted it was somebody broke in and stole my Oscar and they had all these little vignettes yeah and, did, yeah and and uh, I said oh well actually it's not I'm not exploiting anyone other than myself yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harvey Crumpet's not being exploited and it's nothing to do with my characters it's about the Oscar for me mm. and I thought oh and it's also self deprecating and yeah so yeah. yeah I said yes to that. But no, I've never done a series or an ad, and I've never, you know, um, I've never done any sort of commercial work, I suppose. Yeah. So does that mean like every week you get another email from somebody who loves Mary and Max, and that, is that like a vindication for the fact that you were like, no, I'm just going to focus on what I want to make after Harvey Crumpet, after I had all these options? And yeah, um, it is. I think as time's gone on, that fan base. I mean, it used to be that you wouldn't get those emails. There were no emails. Uh, you, you might get a letter in the post or something like that. But now, because people can find me so much more easily through through social media, um, yes, those those emails have become really... Um, they give me some sort of buoyancy. And, and I think because what I do is, more often than not, I'm alone. You do... Uh, you do go through those periods of feeling like a fraud and and, and lots of self doubt, and then when you get one of those letters, you think, oh no, it's not all you know this. So, it, but it never used to be like that. I never. That, I used to be far more confident. And I know. I always joke about if I was an accountant or a brain surgeon or a dentist. As the years will go on, you get more skilled, more confident, more superannuation. But for <laughs> me, for me, it's sort of. I, I, as t- and a lot of artists talk about this is that you, you, you for some reason your confidence doesn't often doesn't increase you, you're as mm. uh, petrified as you were the day you left film school so but I think that's good I, I remember Tim Minchin talking about self-doubt recently uh, and he said no no self-doubt's what keeps him going mm. uh, and makes him try harder and I think yeah I suppose that, that's it yeah um, interesting yeah. That, 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 that's a very good spin to be able to put on it. Well, I, I think the, the moment you sort of know what you're doing, particularly with writing, because writing is something you never perfect, mm. and those who say they have are lying. And, you know, every now and then I, I'll give uh, lectures on script writing and, you know, the three-act structure. And, yes, and I said, well, look, which you ignored. <laughs> which you ignore, and, and, you know, there's certainly it's a... What is it? A paradigm? It's not a. It's it, you know. It's not a for. If it was a formula, then we'd all be rich. But mm. um, I mean, I you know, my films certainly do have a three act structure of sorts. But I'm not obsessed by plot. And with Mary and Max, it always came down to a balance between the comedy and the tragedy. And and I think in a, in a way, I was. It sounds selfish, but I'm really just making the films for myself. And, and I, I'm trying to make films that I think I would go and see and, and tell gags that I think would be funny. And um, I mean, I love irony too, so I love trying to get lots of uh, ironic moments in the in the film. So, yeah, I mean, people say, oh, you, you don't, who's your demographic? And I say, oh, oh, everybody, I don't know, my demographic. I, I never worry about my demographic. Apparently my demographic is... Uh, intellectual, uh, intellectual, highly intellectual women over fifty. Right. <laughs> wow. If you've got to pick one, that's a pretty good demographic. Yeah. Well, it, was, it makes sense because uh, uh, the last couple of years ago, I was at a Mary Max um, screening somewhere, and I looked out in the audience, 
and there was predominantly grey-haired heads out there. I said, oh, it's true. Wow. Um, or lonely teenage girls, that's the other one. Right, interesting, because my theory was like, well, a lot of people are heavily identifying with Max, and these are the sorts of people that will be on IMDb a lot and all these various mm. other cinephile websites. Because it's not just IMDb, I've seen it feature in a bunch of other best films of all time lists. Yeah, it makes it into those lists, and I think it is, it's, it's the loner aspect more than it is about... I mean, certainly, I never use the word disability because I don't see my characters as disabled. I see them as having imperfections that are probably far more visible. And the other thing I always try and say is that we're all flawed, we all have imperfections, and what I'm trying to say with all my films is that you've got to not only embrace other people's imperfections but, but yours as well. And, and to, to learn how to do that, you have to empathise with, with people. So it's really, I just wanted to get people to put themselves in Mary Max's shoes and and through the through plasticine um try and understand what it's like to be these two characters and i think with animation you can really the suspension of disbelief is it's immediate you know you have to give over immediately and you know that these are blobs of clay and people often say oh what are you ever going to do a live action film and when are you going to do a live action film and I said, well, no one ever goes up to a live-action director and say, when are you going to do plasticine? So I, I think there's so many advantages to animation in that we have the, the tools of exaggeration. We, we can create any world we like. We can, our characters can look however we want them to. And, yes, we do have voice actors, but we have so much creative control and, and you can tell the, the story you want to tell exactly how you want it to. Um, yes, there's budget constraints and, and all the rest, but um, I think I'd, I'd, live action, I'd, be, I'd feel very constricted for some mm, reason. Right. Even and though it'd be quicker. Yeah. And it wasn't that case? Because you had to amass a pretty large army of animators. Uh, yeah. Mass. Well, we only had six animators, but yeah. we had a hundred and over 100 other people. Right. So we had... Um, a huge team of uh, set builders with some 200 sets, two, 200 characters, 200 sets, 2,000 props. And so all this had to be handmade. So the art department was the biggest department. Um, but then the sound team, that, that was quite big too. Um, yeah, we had an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, we had an orchestra. We had... Um, well, we, all, we want a very realistic sound too. We didn't want it to be cartoony, so we, we had a very um, layered soundtrack. Again, we wanted the characters to be very believable and authentic, so authentic sound then fed into that. Mm. And, and also music, we want a very uh, nourishing music, orchestral, um, instrumental. Yeah, because I think also at the time there was... The Shreks and the Nemos and all those sorts of films, and we wanted to be not the antidote to all those films, but certainly at the other end of the spectrum to those films and a point of difference. That's, well, yeah, yeah, that's the first thing that struck me on the rewatch was like these are like characters who would get written out of those sorts of stories using colours that would often get written out of those palettes, mm. those sorts of. Animations. Yeah, well, originally I wanted the film to be completely grayscale, and right. I was yeah. told no. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, can I have Max's world in grayscale?" Oh, all right. Mm. I said, "Well, Mary's world's going to be brown, yes, desaturated because the seventies to me, are, you know, uh, 
in Mount Waverley were were a very brown decade. Mm, Everyone yeah. was painting their house brown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and also realised that colour is a great great way of enhancing the mood of the characters' environments. And and of course New York in the seventies was very concrete. Uh, and so it made sense that Max's world was grayscale to reflect his psyche as well, you know, his, his loneliness, his depression, and, and Mary, similarly, a desaturated brown world. Uh, and then we, you know, then we started to think about, well, what happens when they send each other objects? Does that character, does that, does that object stay in its colour palette or does it switch? And we thought, no, no, we, it'll, it'll stay. And... So then we realised, well, colour is a great device, cinematic device you can use to enhance all sorts of things from, from humour to, to pathos. And um, So I suppose that aspect of the film made it different as well. I mean, I thought I was just ripping off Spielberg with Schindler's List, having the <laughs> spot red. I thought, oh, everyone will just criticise me for ripping him off. But again, I think with animation too, is when you do something for the first time in animation, you re- it you really do stand out. Whereas in live action, it's a lot harder to stand out because nearly everything's been done. So, um, mm. and I think animation's a great field for people who do want to experiment and and push the boundaries of cinema. Because um, I remember at film school, my lecturer was um, Sarah Watt. Who, who, oh yeah, yeah, yeah who, both ways. Yeah, and she 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 said, I don't care if you're animating uh, charcoal sand, plasticine or with a computer, she said it, it's a good story well told and um, spend most of your time on your screenplay and don't mm. even move into uh, start animating until that screenplay is, is as polished as possible and, uh, and she was right, you know, and she I, said she was, I think she said um, the best writing is rewriting and uh, you know, just mm. simple concepts. I know when I talk to students now, is that, you know, I say, well, I always start with anger and the alphabet, and I know I've got the alphabet and this emotion, and somehow I have to mm. <laughs> create <laughs> sentences and words with the alphabet. Uh, that so then someone will read it and then finance the film, and, and yes, right. And students just look at you like as if you're mad. They say, mm. No, no, no. It's all about the storyboard and the animators and the characters and. Right. Okay. So, so in the case of Mary Max, other like scenes that were deleted, or did you like stick completely to the to the um the script? Yeah. Well, I I think the trouble in animation is our for our editors, we really don't give them much to play with. The ratio is pretty much one to one or one point one. So with Mary Max, we did have probably an extra ten minutes of footage, but not so much in terms of scenes. It was more shots and. Really, the film shrunk in length purely just each each shot's having its head and tail contracted. Yes. So yeah. we we didn't have many take twos or threes. We didn't have that luxury, and so it was really about the chronology of the shots more more than anything, and and getting a balance between your close, mids, and wides, and mm. and all the camera moves were real camera moves. So we had a great cinematographer, Gerald Thompson, who made the film cinematic and I'd never done a camera move until Mary and Max yes. all my other films were locked right. off and static so that was a real mm. shock to have these these luxurious camera moves and we knew we needed camera moves to make it cinematic and particularly you know I, I it took me a while to understand that a feature is a whole different beast to a short I thought 
making Merry Max would just be like four huffy crumpets joined together. Yes. But yeah, I realised, yeah. no, it has a whole different rhythm and, and um, you know, a film's not the sum of its parts. It, it actually has, um, yeah, a whole different approach. And uh, mm. and so, yeah, I learned a lot of lessons on Merry Max. And we, I mean, I think three quarters of the way through, I thought it was going to be a complete disaster. Right, really? <laughs> I just didn't think the characters would resonate at that point. Because Mary, too, she only had these little tiny black eyeballs, and she's the only character who didn't have white eyeballs. All the other characters had big white mm. teardropped eyeballs. And she had these little prawn eyes, as we called them, and they really... And I was worried that her, she wasn't going to express as much. And then, on top of that, she had these big black glasses. But we... The animators did a great job of, of expressing her emotion through her her movement and the way she waddled and and just her head bowing and yeah and the way uh, her mouth disappears sometimes and then yeah yeah we we took yeah. her mouth off quite a lot because mm. we found that by removing her mouth she became more solemn and um, mm. endearing and the anim- look again it was the, the animators did a fantastic job I didn't animate a single oh no I animated one shot I animated a pamphlet falling to the ground <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. Uh, but the animators certainly they took possession of the characters. We had two teams. We had a, the Max animators and the Mary animators, so three on each. And there's one guy actually just mostly did Max typing for a year. Wow! Right. And all these little nuances that they created themselves really brought the characters to life. And and I said to them, look, you know, you you take ownership of the characters, and and as long as you stick to the screenplay and. Um, you know, feel free to to add quirks and idiosyncrasies to the characters to make them more, um, you know, dimensional. And so they did. And so I think that's part of the success too. Is the the, the characters are, are so quirky. I mean, yes. I hate that word quirky, well, but they are. They're quirky. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of films around that time that do just go hell for leather for the quirk, mm. and they kind of miss the character. But in your case, you can have somebody mm. who like you know does something on a Monday and you know that they feel this way about this and that. And mm. then, but then also there's a huge character arc behind them. Well, the so. thing too is I learned pretty quickly that you know, to create a good character with dimension, it's not just piling on the quirks, that they have to have uh, incongruities and they have to have con- inner conflict and you have mm. to make them as well-rounded as you can. And, and in animation, that's the trouble is so many animated characters are... One-dimensional. Yes, they yeah, they yeah. just stereotypical and 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 I I love the archetypes and I, I you know my characters are the underdog archetype and mm. yeah but it's like well, how can I make them believable how can I make them how how can I make them feel like they're somebody you know either yourself or a neighbour or a relative and so I would try and give them these conflicting aspects. Uh, you know, Max is mostly passive, but there are times where he suddenly is incredibly violent. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah. And Mary is, um, you know, constantly in this state of self-pity, but then there's times where she's incredibly brave. And so, mm. again, giving them these incongruous, incongruous moments help to make them um, real. Mm. So, And that's what I was telling the students too, is that, you know... Don't, the temptation is to always go for the stereotype and, and spend the first fifteen minutes giving a bit of backstory, so you understand their motivation and all this mm. stuff. Which <laughs> I love backstory. I mean, I I often get told off for 
focusing too much on the backstory and, and not enough on the plot. No, but you zip through backstory. Like, well, at least... In... Well, also, too, I think if, if it's engaging and entertaining... Because that's the other thing. I do use the word entertaining. My dad was a clown, so right. so vaudeville was his thing, and he used to say, well, you're not an auteur, you're an entertainer like I was, and you've got to entertain the audience. And I said, yeah, well, I, I know that, but I also want to move them and, and mm. maybe educate them or, or let them uh, make them contemplate their own existence in some way. But he was sort of right. He, he, and I, I, in Mary Max too, there are certain letters, particularly Max's letters, that just go off on these tangents and rifts and, and they're just really not driving the plot or story forward, but they're entertaining enough that the audience go with them. As long as you keep coming back to the central story, yes, then you're yeah. OK. But <laughs> so at what stage did you bring the voice cast in? Um, <clears throat> well, it was a real... I mean, traditionally, yes, you have the actors in first, particularly if there's lip sync. Um, but because my films are most, you know, they're all narrated, most of the voice, most of what you're hearing is through this voiceover. Um, but we knew that Mary Max wouldn't survive just solely on on one narration. So we had Mary and Max's voiceover. Then there are moments of lip sync. So we we got. Barry Humphreys in pretty soon to do the guide track and, and recorded him once at the beginning and then we recorded him at the end. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, we couldn't get... It took it's 18 months for him to say yes right. or for his agent to allow him to read the script. <laughs> That's the story goes. Um, so we didn't get him on board until sort of, I'd say, three-quarters of the way through the shoot. So we didn't know who our Max was even going to be. Wow, right. And we'd had, um, oh, we had a list of actors. William Hurt was going to do it at one point, and 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 I, at one point I was going to do it. <laughs> I was just like, I, I, and I wasn't, I wasn't obsessed with having. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, of course, is was an amazing actor, and I, the reason I wanted him was because of the film Happiness. Um, you know, it's just it's something really tragic about that character he played in Happiness. Mm, yeah really disturbing too and but somehow really likable and, and and he also had the physicality he had the, the the new york accent was already there so there wasn't it wasn't a big stretch for him to the only thing he we really wanted him to do was to be more monotone and more deadpan in his delivery mm. and mary well mary I, you know i was a big fan still am a big fan of muriel's wedding which is a seminal film for me growing up and uh, and Tony Collette seemed the logical choice and she said yes pretty early so we recorded right. her twice and then we got a young little eight-year-old girl uh, Bethany Whitmore we wanted again we wanted real we were thinking of getting Tony Collette to do Mary as a young girl but you know an adult's voice just yeah so hard to be Even convincing if you some helium or something yeah like it just sounds like an adult and I know the Simpsons and all those shows use adults to do kids voices but we thought no that we really need an eight-year-old girl and so we auditioned 40 little eight-year-old girls over two weekends and <laughs> Bethany was heads and shoulders above the rest she yeah. just had this complete tragedy about her Right, and she's had a great career since. Yes, yeah, yeah. Girl asleep, fantastic film. Yeah, I yeah, know she she's really blossomed, but you know, now she's a, a woman. But <laughs> yeah. back then she was this eight year old girl, and mm. she was a method actor too. She turned up to the auditions with a 
birthmark oh. on her head and she brought a cherry ripe and a, I think she brought a can of condensed milk from memory. <laughs> so yeah, she was writing. To, and she would, didn't smile at all. And I thought, oh, she's just putting that on. But she really, she mm. wasn't a big smiler at all. But um, no, she's really blossomed. Uh, so yeah, to answer your question, we, yeah, we mostly get the actors in before the animation, particularly if there's lip sync. But because too, I, I try and make the whole process as spontaneous as animation can be most animation is so prescribed and and planned and locked off that there's very little room to be yeah spontaneous Mm. and so Mm. again we let the actors the animators try and be spontaneous my editor bill i gave him a lot of freedom uh cinematographer same so i try to give people enough room to maneuver so that they wouldn't feel restricted and they could bring their own flavor to the film so it certainly is the only one of my films that I can genuinely say um, I, there's no way I could have done it by myself. I mean, it would have taken 200 years to yeah, yeah. done it by myself, but it was a collaboration. Mm. Uh, even though I was the writer, director and production designer, really, Gerald, the cinematographer, brought amazing things and they all did. And, and I think it's because they all they all loved the script. Uh, we all made them read the script before they entered the doors. So if they weren't on board, if they didn't like the story, then then it wasn't going to work. And Mm. so they all became very passionate and they all took ownership of the project. Yeah, fantastic. So did, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had a place in Thornbury. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. So my friends um, live next door, Ash and Beck. Oh, right. Oh, Ash and Beck, yes, yeah. They say hello. Oh, right. Little Olive, yes. Yeah, that, that... that was a great studio. Well, I'd never had a studio, a proper studio, where I lived, and, and it was a real luxury to have my workspace downstairs. But mm. And that's where I made Ernie Biscuit. And I really, you know, as I said earlier, I wasn't going to make another film, and and, um, and Screen Australia and Film Vic said, no, no, we'll support you with this short, and you work out, you know, how you're going to get your budgets down for the feature. Mm-hmm. So it's taken 10 years. But um, so Thornbury was this great little episode of my life where we only lived there for three years. We bought the building, we renovated it. Um, I had all this space to myself downstairs and I really did experiment because I'd found over my career I'd never had time to, to play with the clay and just experiment with different types of materials and different types of paint and wood and wire and cardboard and... And so I did. So I've created a whole... And I finally now have the aesthetic I've always been trying to ha- aspire to because back then you couldn't even get plasticine, proper plasticine, back in the 90s. Um, and now we have all these new materials. And so um, I finally feel that my aesthetic is just getting to the place I want it to be. Will I ever make another film? That's the trouble. I, I don't know if I'm going to... You know, if we get this film financed or not uh, it's all been a waste of time but um, so yeah Thornbury was great it was this nice little period where um, I was be, I was able to be left alone and just yeah, focus okay. on, on experimentation I'd never lived in the north I was you know brought up in Mount Waverley and mm, St Kilda yeah. and, and I really missed the south but then we'd ne- I'd never lived in the city so now I'm living in this tiny little box in Flinders Street where I've just been locked away writing and and I still sculpt every day. I've, I've started a little Instagram account where I uh, put up little um, sculptures every day. I'll show you in yeah, a sec. Mm. And so hopefully by the end of the year we'll have the money. Mm-hmm. See what happens. And, um, yeah, so hopefully this time next year we'll be well and truly in production. Um, 
if we don't get the money, well, we can try and go to Netflix. And if they say no, then um, I probably will start to answer those emails from other studios saying, well, I, I'll sell out. <laughs> I'll finally sell yeah, out. I'll take Nomeo until you four. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. What a Smurf six? I don't care. Um, yeah, I mean, but... Again, I've been lucky to date that I haven't had to do that. And yeah, it's imp- impressive, mm. actually. But well, I, I, a lot of people have done commercials and done other sorts of things. Like yeah, I, I, I mean, to my own detriment, but, but I, and I say this to students, well, you know, if you really want to be an auteur and you really want to be independent, then you have to live that, that life and you have to be a purist and you have to dedicate yourself to it. And I haven't starved yet, but, you know... Um, the day we won the Oscar for Harvey Grumpet, I was on the doll. Yeah, right. So, mm. you know, it's it's it is tough, but um, I'm one of the lucky ones who's been able to do. I mean, every script I've written has been turned into a film, and mm. that's mm. I never really thought about it much. But I, having you know a lot of friends who are scriptwriters, I've realised oh, I'm very lucky that every script I've written has been made. So, Touchwood, um, mm. you know, that'll continue. And I remember at film school too, I really, I had this pretentious idea of doing a trilogy of trilogies. So I wanted to do three short films, three long short films, or three half hours, and three features. And now I've added them all up and I've actually almost done it. So I've I've really only got two features and one long short to go. So um, (laughs) I'll have done my nine and then I can die. (laughs) (laughs) So um, who actually does own it? Like if Criterion wanted to do a release of Mary Max, they can't Mm. come, they don't? Come to you? No, um, well, Melanie Coombs, my former producer, she she and I made Mary Max and Harvey Crumpet, so they're the only two we made together. And it was her production company that made both of them, so I was employed as the director, right. which is not an unusual structure at all. And I, and, you know, I certainly have points and you know a percentage of royalties and those sorts of things. But in terms of copyright, no, um, Melodrama Pictures owns those two films. Right. Okay. Uh, whereas Uncle, Cousin and Brother and Ernie Biscuit, they're all mine. Um, and this new film, we've structured in a way that I will own 50% of it. So this, Great. if we get okay. this feature up, I'll actually own a percentage. But look, it doesn't really matter because, you know, once the film's done, off it goes. And a lot of directors don't own any of their films. It's mm. not unusual. Yeah. But I think it's because I am an auteur, it, it, people do find it unusual that I don't own those, particularly the two that did well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. the ones I don't own. But I do get royalties from time to time, but not, you know. Again, short films don't make no, they no. make profit. And, you know, Mary Max, the musical too, is, is it just had its um, world premiere in um, Calgary. I've never seen it. I, I've got nothing to do with it other than it's based on the film. Uh, it's all new music, um, and it's now it's being bought by a company in Austria, so it's about to have a German premiere what? later this wow. year, um, in German. Well, it's, I mean, I'm dying to see it, and the guy who's behind it all is a guy called Bobby Cronin, who lives in New York and, and fell in love with the film somewhere on a plane I think he saw it and he just wanted to turn it into a musical so we licensed it to him or Melanie mm-hmm. did and he's been working on it six seven years it's right. actually well, I yeah. said to him on on the on Skype the other day I said you do realize that you've been working on this project longer than it took us to make it and I never <laughs> thought that would you know, happen but 
He said, oh, no, well, musicals, he said, gee, you know, you think animation's difficult, musicals, Broadway musicals, because yeah. uh, mm. that's where he wants it to go, can take forever. And But it's, it's early early days, but it is, he, he says it's getting a good response. Um, so they're constantly reworking it, and apparently you don't go straight to Broadway, you have to go yeah. to other territories first, and then, mm. then if you're lucky enough, you'll make it to Broadway. So, mm. so that's interesting, you know, it's yeah. sort of like, wow. Couldn't have predicted that. Um, no, oh, gee, no. I mean, it's just you, you know. I always say, I always say to students too, don't you know, keep careful what you wish for, and you know, don't remember that it, when you make a film, it's locked off. Once it's once it's released, it's locked off. You can't go back and rework it. It's not like a piece of music where you can go back and um, or a poem or something. You know, it's mm. that's it. It's locked off and it's digital too. So it's on the internet and that's it. And people will be stealing it and copying it and yeah. And you got to live with those. I mean, the one thing I certainly can't. I have trouble watching the film because there's a lot of things I um, cringe at. I mean, that there's too much. Toilet humour. I yeah. think there's one too many poo gags. <laughs> poo, you know, birds pooing on people. Oh, why was you know? <laughs> someone went through and counted it. Someone's that's right. The, the reviewer of Variety, the day after Sundance, most of the reviews we got were great. The one that wasn't so great was from Variety, and the critic actually, I think he hated it from memory, but he said I had a, f- a fecal fetish. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. And he's right. I thought, what's he talking about? But then we went through the film, and yeah, there were. Apparently, thirteen instances where the, there were poo references or farts or something. Fart yeah. gags, and I, on reflection, I think, yeah, yeah. Why did I, you know? Well, that's what I was wondering that too. Watching it again, I was like, I didn't remember there being quite so many. But then I was like, well, it kind of does fit in with your tone. Mm. I mean, something like that is fits right in between comedy and like you know, and actually quite a serious. I think in retrospect story. too, is to to try and be not take myself too seriously or let the film become too pretentious or mm. all pretentious, and, and that. I think the, particularly being an Australian filmmaker, we have the you know, yeah. that sort of, mm. uh, you know, the tall poppy sy- syndrome kicking in where if you get too wanky or too mm. arty or something, you're going to get cut down. And so I think in hindsight, I was, you know, those poo jokes, that to- the toilet humour was to, was to bring the pretentious elements down. But in retrospect, I think I was fine. I shouldn't, you know. Mm. But that's a trouble. You always... Every filmmaker wants to go back, and that's why we have directors' cuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. I'd love to go back and re- have a re-edit. But yeah, well, I think we're getting what the fifth version of Apocalypse now this month. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and, and, and Blade Runners. Yes, there's about right. four or five goes there, and mm. Ridley Scott. You know, he's got the luxury of being able to yeah. do that. But um, but again, I think as I said earlier, I, I'm about moving forward and just you know, yes. I'm, I have enough regrets. I don't need. To. So is there anything you can say about the forthcoming project? Um, oh, look, it's just more of the same. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, there'll be a lot of body, high body count. Um, it's certainly... Uh, well, actually, the point of difference, I suppose, is that this one, the protagonist is female. Um, even though Mary, you know, Mary is a woman, obviously, but Mary was myself. So really, you could argue Mary and Max was two, about two men. Mm. Um and uncle, cousin, brother, Harvey Crumpet, all men, and I did call, get called a misogynist a few years ago. Really? So I, was like, well, I said, well, no, I'm, you know, these are personal stories and I just happen to be male. And mm. so, of course, they're going to be male stories. But this one is a female story and 
it's about obsession, uh, obsessiveness, um, because I am, uh, I'm certainly on the OCD spectrum. Yes, and it's it's a it's a it's a tragedy with comedy in it, not a comedy with tragedy right. in it. It's like David Lynch saying, "It's a woman in trouble." <laughs> woman in trouble, yeah. Every, every time, it's a clay biography or clayography, which is the word I invented um, to be pretentious. Uh, I invented that word because there was the claymation, but that's actually a trademark by an, an animator, Will Vinton, oh, right. who passed away last year actually but oh. he he started Leica Animation which um, now is run by Nike and Travis Knight who mm. he's the heir to the Nike fortune um, so uh, and I thought well my films are all biographies of sorts they're not documentaries and I thought well they're not documentations you know I was trying to think well I could never f- find the right words to describe what I was doing. And I thought, well, they are clay biographies. And I thought, clayography, clayography. Mm. And I Googled it and there was no one... Oh, wow. so you trademark that? Uh, well, then I thought I would, but then someone told me how much a trademark costs. And so <laughs> yeah. I've yet to do mm. that. But it's it's on um, it's on Wikipedia as a, as a word now. Oh, great. So, so um, next might... step, Oxford English Dictionary. Yeah, maybe one day. It'll, you know, because... Um, but if I ever make a fortune, I'll definitely trademark it. Not that anyone mm. bother stealing it. But um, yeah, so I call my f- my films. Uh, my company is now Adam Elliott Clayographies, and I've called my company that to remind myself to just stick to telling biographies. Um, I love reading biographies. I love biopics. Um, you know, you know, you know. A lot of the films I. I look back and think, well, why was I tricked at that film? So, oh, it's actually not because of the plot. It's just it's just a, a beginning to end of somebody's life. Um, actually, when speaking of David Lynch, I love The Elephant Man. I've always loved The Elephant Man, black and white as well. Yeah. But just mm. it's just about a poor person's life, poor miserable life of this mm. poor man. And I, I sort of I said to students too that, because um, you know, especially in animation. Anim- animation students, oh, they're, they're writing these fantastical stories, and particularly they're all uh, obsessed with anime, and, and and they're terrified of telling stories about themselves or their family, and I think because they think they'll be boring. And I said, no, look, look at your auntie or your mother or your, your, your you know any relatives. You'll find that everybody has a story to tell, and even. The, it's just you've got to you've just got to tell it in an interesting way, and uh, and so I I don't think I'll ever run out of stories to tell. I mean, I've got sixty four cousins, of <laughs> so many uncles and aunties, and mm. um, anyway, yeah, Great. but yeah. So Mary Max is um, yeah. Who'd have thought I'd be sitting here ten years later, and it would still be. I don't know where is it on the IMDb um, at one eighty nine. I think. Okay. So it's still fairly solidly in there. It's not going to drop out anytime soon. So this seems to be where it hovers. I mean, at one mm. point I saw it was um, it was ahead of Gandhi. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I think, to be fair, your film has aged better than Gandhi. Yeah, well, I think, I think maybe it's still there because animation tends to have a longer shelf life and it doesn't date as much and that the story is universal. I think that yeah. really helps and that it's been translated into... Lots of languages. It's not really for a specific demographic. It seems mm. to appeal to a lot of people, even the older intellectual women. Yeah, which not many of those IMDb top fifty films do. No, so it's certainly it's an anomaly in there, mm. and um, 
Yeah, I, I just wish it was bringing in lots of money for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, SBS and Phil Victoria and all those other people. <laughs> probably... Yeah, they'd love it too. Uh, yeah. Well, we actually, t- Mary Max too, had um, $2 million from private investment. So $6 million was taxpayer, Australian taxpayer, and the other $2 million was from two brothers in New York. Oh, the Adirondack? Yeah, thing? yeah. yeah right. Tom and Paul Hardart, who... Yeah. Took a big gamble. They're still talking to me. We still email each other every now and then, and I catch up with them when I go to oh, New yeah. York. And uh, are they on board for the next project? Um, I think they've well, they've moved away from. Uh, I never know where they get their money, or you know what, mm. what their financial situation is. But they've certainly steered away from cinema. Um, I don't know why, but... Um, well, it's probably a smart financial move. <laughs> yeah, well, I think... Uh, I mean, they... I mean, GFC. They know. invested before the GFC, mm. so... And that was before we had the government rebate as well. So Mary Max was certainly funded in the... You know, in a very different period. Mm. Um, and pretty much after 2009, things really started to change. Netflix became this thing, and... Uh, VOD, Video On Demand. Yes. I remember hearing VOD. What's VOD? <laughs> That'll never take off, I thought. VOD. Uh, and, of course, Australian box office has plummeted. Uh, well, it's not that it was ever high. It's, well, what is it now, 2%? Or well, like, yeah, it's all right. It's not doing too badly. Too um, no, last year I wrote an article for The Guardian about misogyny in Australian films that got government funding. Oh, yes. Because I, was, cause I was a, became a judge and a host for the actor films. Ah, yes, yes. And so I had to sit there and watch all these middle... Low, middle to low budget Australian movies and I was just oh. astonished at the female body count and the retrograde right. writing and so I wrote this piece and the Guardian were like yep we'll take that and it became this big talking point for a, you know a few hours <laughs> well things are certainly but, changing now well there. yes now it's yes, very different all these and initiatives and yeah uh, yeah you're right yeah. So I like, even off the record got with my new script I was um, I can't even name names um, but some of the feedback I got from one of the government agencies was was did I feel? How did I feel about being a male telling a female story? Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And I said, "Oh God, you're giving me a complex now." <laughs> um, 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 I said, "Well, uh, for years I've been called a misogynist because I haven't made any films with female protagonists." And I mm. said, "Well, just, I'm trying to make amends, and now I'm getting possibly criticised for it." Well, yeah, it's tricky because I got because Screen Australia got in touch with me like a few hours after it went live, and they were like. Well, we just would like to remind you that you know that all, every film going to Sundance this year has is directed by a woman or has ah. been written by a woman. So we you know when we have these like projects and I can't remember what it's called now. There's certain initiatives to try and find yeah, female stories and that sort of thing. Yeah, but, well, that, well, congratulations. Yeah, I mean, because you you know part of a, a movement, and I'm absolutely behind it 100 percent because mm. I think one of the reasons I started telling the stories I wanted to tell because it, it was just. It was too much blokiness in Australian cinema, and oh, okay, yes, there's all those famous Australian films that we all love, but, but there was the, the, the scale, it was out of whack, and yeah, there was too yeah. many of them, and they were just, there's, oh, this, you know, I don't want to name names because I know a lot of these people, but um, I wanted to make films that were just anti heroes and were just about nothing and, and just, but really moving and nourishing and, and, um, because I always said too, I, I, I said I wanted people to go into the cinema with Mary Max, and and it's like each audience member was sitting in a compost heap, and they were getting nourished by the yes, end of the film. They right, felt yeah. like I wasn't, I didn't want to waste their time, and and I really did want them to be crying by the end, and that's a weird aspiration to have 
to mm. make people cry, but I thought, no, I, can, I know I can make them laugh and I know I can write some gags, but it's so hard to get a, an audience to be, you know, pull out their tissues. And yes. Yeah, so yeah, I thought, yeah. that's what I really want to do. And um, but I didn't think we'd do it, but we, yeah. But there is a sense of perfection about the end of Mary Max, which I can't quite put my finger on. Like, there's so few films that just end and you're just like, <laughs> yeah, that could not be any better. Well, I think a lot of it's also to do with the, the humming chorus from Madame Butterfly because it is so soulful mm. and and um, and we had a lot of trouble with the ending too because it, in the script it it was didn't have as much hope and we wanted we wanted even though you know Max is dead and Mary's crying we wanted there to be more moments of um, it to be uplifting in some oh. way and we really thought oh god how do you make that ending uplifting and and then we thought well when Mary looks up at the ceiling and sees the letters instead of her being sad she will put a big smile on but there'd be tears yes. of happiness yeah. and the baby's always got to be smiling and Max almost has a smile on his face so and the all the camera moves we had pivoting upwards as well so even the camera moves are all yeah. going up 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 and the music has a crescendo so even though it's incredibly sad, <laughs> it's somehow it's that nice balance. Yeah, and that um, echoes that opening shot of the cityscape. Well, I see that's what it reminded me of. The way yeah, well, you know the old crane shot. We wanted a big crane, and um, and I knew I wanted to end with that Ethel Mumford quote: um, "You can choose your relatives. You, can choose, uh, you can't choose your relatives, but you can choose your friends." And and that really sort of was a nice little way of tying up the film that it being about friendship ultimately. And uh, and that life had gone full circle because originally the baby. Then someone, what were we going to do with the baby? The baby was going to die as well. <laughs> Not dark enough. <laughs> needs to be dark. <laughs> oh yeah, we had all sorts of yeah, options. We certainly there were periods where we were challenged about Max even dying. Um, mm, yeah. And I said, no, if Max lives, then that'll be too Disney. And the reason Max dies is because a friend of mine, um, his mother was dying of cancer. He was in Scotland and uh, his family rang and said, you better get back to Australia immediately. Mum's got days to live. This is back in the 90s, oh no, the 80s. And um, so he flew all the way back from Scotland, got to Tullamarine, jumped in a cab, drove out to the house in uh, Wheelers Hill, got there and she died 10 minutes before he arrived. And I always remember that because I thought, ah, oh, that's that's real life. Yeah. If Disney had done that, he would have just made it in time. But that's not how life works. And so we wanted that with Mary Max, is that you're never quite sure, you know, did Max die just as the cab was pulling up or did he die the day before? But it doesn't really matter. The fact is that he, you know, she didn't make it in time. But for her, it's not so much that they never met, it's that, she honoured all the things that she said she was going to do and that particularly with the typewriter key we thought yeah. well that's a really good symbol and, and metaphor for and life. And his door was unlocked so the world could potentially be there for him and exist. Yes, yeah, yeah, there was all, oh yeah, god it was a, such a hard ending to um, block because there, there was so many, and then we realised too there was all these little problems with it because um, that's why we had Mary going to the wrong door so we had all these little, like, little um, not cookies, but just little moments to sort of keep the audience guessing as to what was going to happen, which way. Mm. And the other problem that happened with the 
final shot. Sorry, I'm going on and oh, on. No, um, that final shot, um, the animator who animated it, Darren Burgess, who's an amazing animator, he, um, it's one of the longest shots in the film. I think it goes for 40 seconds or so. And he went in there and it took him over two weeks, I think, to do that sh- one shot. And then what happened, because um, it was early days of digital cameras, we shot the film on Canon digital cameras, out of the 1,300 shots in the film, it was the one that somehow there was a file corruption and it just vanished. <laughs> that shot just wow. never made it to the server or whatever hard drive it was meant to go to. And we had all these experts who put all this software together and the shot got lost. So Darren had to go back in and reanimate the whole shot. And we were terrified because usually the take twos, in animation anyway, are never as good as take the take ones. But he did, He, to his credit, he went in and, and pre-shot the whole thing. And, and you know, we never know, we will never be able to compare the two shots because one's gone. But he felt that he did a better job the second time round. Right. Uh, so you know, it's word serendipity, and um, mm. and also it was we shot that shot at the end of the film too, because in animation you don't have to shoot chronologically; you can actually cheat. Yeah. But we said no, we'll leave that to the very end that shot and put all our effort into that. So yeah, but by the end of the, I mean, it was all a bit of a blur for me by then because I was completely exhausted. Um, my producer and I were starting to not get along. And, mm sure what the film was because we hadn't got into Sundance we hadn't got anything we, we, yeah. we had no idea what was going to happen and then yeah and then just before Christmas Sundance rang and they said you've got in and we thought oh wow Sundance it's so hard to just get into yeah, Sundance yeah, and yeah. then they said and, and even better you're going to be the opening night film it's like what <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big you know, mm. big stress and what a way to launch the film yeah but yeah but uh, 10 years ago now yeah, yeah. almost ten to the day. Yeah. So they never got US distribution? No, well, what happened was the GFC sort of hit um, a third of the people who... Well, a lot of the studios started to get shut down. A lot mm. of the studios we were hoping to sell to, or, to, you know, theatrical uh, companies and uh, exhibitors, everyone, no-one was buying, particularly weren't buying an Australian claymation about Asperger's, so... <laughs> uh, it was one of the worst Sundances apparently for for, for dec- decades because I think it was the twenty fifth year I think it was it was some meant to be some big m- momentous year and um, so we went in with high hopes um, we sold to France immediately Gaumont bought it and then the Germans bought it in Japan and and so it's we suddenly realised oh actually we should have really tried to have had a world premiere in Europe not America because Europe's where we were selling to yeah and the Americans liked it and it did well at festivals there but they didn't know how to sell it they mm. didn't know what it was they didn't know what to call it is it a family film with you know and and so they just it was too hard they just yeah. put it in a too hard basket and said yeah and then Netflix uh, well a company called IFC IFC films they yeah, yeah. they took it on board and then they sold it to the Sundance Channel and and Netflix oh, at the same right. time, and so we were okay. like oh, horribly dizzy with it all. That Netflix, don't they just deliver DVDs to people's yeah, houses? Yeah, which is pretty much what they were doing in two thousand nine, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. And so, and we kept hoping for the US theatrical, but we quickly realised, no, nah, it's too. Even with the big name uh, actors, it didn't really 
And in animation, big name actors really don't sell a film necessarily. They help, but mm. um, I mean, look at all Pixar's films. You know, yeah. there's only a handful where they've got big name actors, Tom Hanks. And, but mm. um, no, so yeah, we quickly realised no, it was not for America. Um, right. And UK. Mm. Uh, yeah, got a little theatrical in, in mm. cinemas in the UK, yeah. Um, the Japanese, the, the weirdest country was Japan. They bought it, completely dubbed it. Um, and the French did as well, like all French actors. And the Japanese did some crazy poster which was half pink, half blue because they were the two colours that were banned from the colour palette for the making of the film. Yet the Japanese went for this really wow. gaudy sort of um, graphic design poster and the, all the design they made up all these little novelty toys and things and I don't think they ever realised it wasn't for children but anyway they, they but what happened there was it was released the same week as the tsunami hit no. <laughs> so, so it just was oh, bad timing in Japan um, okay. but since then it's, it's got a it's, it's Iranians love it um, Colombia right uh, it's in Israel, and I only know that from the amount of emails that come in from these. Mm. And I think, was well, that? Is it? I mean, I can understand Israel because Max is Jewish, but I mm. think Iran. Okay, the Iranian cinema is fantastic, um, but then I think maybe it's to do with repression or something. And the Japanese are repressed, yeah, and the Iranians are repressed, and Colombia certainly has had a yeah. repressive periods and repressive dictators and all the rest, but. I don't know, maybe it's people who feel... Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, yeah. yeah. Whether have, what part, you know, mental health and these sorts of relationships play in everyday life. It's, yeah, and so. I think maybe it's, it's that, again, the characters are universal and that, and that particularly, particularly people who are marginalised, misunderstood, or, or the other, I use the, mm. the, the other, so identify with the characters, and it's yeah. as simple as that, but... I don't know. I think you go insane trying to work out how, why films resonate with certain people. I mean, mm-hmm. of course, that's the worry that that's my last film and I'll never be able to do it again. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see what happens in the next couple months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. So much. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I don't expect to be doing it.